Okay, well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Okay, did you guys hear about the uh, old cowboy that went in to go get his hair cut and his beard shaved? Okay, so he's like super old, really wrinkly skin, and he came into the barber. And he said, Barbara, I can never get all the whiskers on my face shaved off clean because of all like the skin and the wrinkles. So the barber's like, oh, I've got a trick for that. And he hands him this wooden ball. And he says, just put this inside your cheek, and then I'll shave you. And so he shaves him because his cheek gets expanded. And he shaves it, and so it's smooth. And he's like, this is the smoothest I've ever had my skin. He's like, but what happens, like, what, what would happen if I accidentally swallowed the wooden ball? And he says, oh, don't worry. It happens all the time. You just got to bring it in two or three days later. <laughs> you get it? <laughs> Quality. So I get that on uh, my favorite uh, Facebook page is called Dad Jokes. Uh, I got that one on Dad Jokes yesterday. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Okay, guys, guess what we get to do today? We get to land the plane in Nehemiah today. Wow, we get to close out the book. Peter, you're like, Nehemiah? Like, we've been in Nehemiah this semester? <laughs> ah, I like that. We get to finish the book uh, as we've been walking through, working through the book of Nehemiah this semester. So I know we're not at the total end of the semester just yet, but we have some fun news happening. The next two weeks here in our chapel is going to be Omega Chapel running the show. Yeah. So this or next week and the following week, they're going to be here for two weeks. Uh, so make sure you're here uh, at 11.30. They are efficient with their timelines. And so they probably will be starting right away. So make sure you're here ready to go and we'll support Omega. Uh, as they take over the next two weeks of chapel, and then we have one more week following that. It's our commissioning service, uh, which will be really cool. So we're finishing Nehemiah today, and uh, so you can open up your Bibles to chapter 13. But before we get to chapter 13, I just want to give a brief summary like we have each time, right? We've talked about um, the return to Jerusalem. There was a reform and a rebuilding that took place. Lots of R words uh, that landed on our points. Kim and I never meant to do this in the beginning of the semester. And our series starts with an R word. And all of our points just landed on the R words uh, throughout the scriptures. So uh, we talked about the return. We talked about the reform. We talked about the rebuild. And then we talked about the response of Israel and the, the rhythms that they established. Kim talked last week about repentance and the responsibility uh, that they took on. Uh, so all these are words in our reform series, which has been kind of fun to play along with. But uh, what I want to do is I want to start on our summary today, specifically at the end of chapter 7. I don't remember if a couple weeks ago Kim was preaching out of chapter 7, and she finished her sermon on the last verse in chapter 7, and it's such a beautiful picture. And she told people to put an exclamation mark on the period that was uh, jotted down there. So somebody want to read out the last verse of chapter 7 for me? Someone flip there and just go for it. Just read it out.
settled in their towns. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Right? They did it. They completed what they had set out to do. And now they're finally, they can breathe again. They're out of captivity. They've made the journey home. They've been able to see things, established rhythms back into place, and they're settled in their homes. So then on chapter 8, we talked about that they celebrated day after day, they celebrated. And we read that they got up and for six hours they read scripture. Ezra spoke scripture out to them. And the leaders and the Levites and the priests read scriptures to them. And they responded with praise and they established these spiritual rhythms on a regular basis in their life. And in chapter 8 it said their joy was very great. Isn't that beautiful? Their joy was very great. Chapter 9, last week Kim talked about confession and repentance and healing. And she went through, read the whole scripture, I loved it, the whole chapter and a bit of the prayer that, the, uh, that was read and written down there. The longest prayer in the Bible, and as she went through this beautiful prayer, it talked about God's character, it talked about God's nature, it talked about God's accomplishment, who he was and what, he is, what he's done, that God is from everlasting to everlasting. It's beautiful. He had compassion for his people. And because of that, their response was they made these pledges. They made these binding agreements with one another. And it says in 938, we are making binding agreements. And they put it in writing. The Levites, the leaders, the priests, they affixed their seal to it. And they made it legal. Beautiful. Cooperation. Unity together. Chapter 10 goes on and it lists by name. To those who wrote their names down, to make this legal binding agreement. Talk about accountability. By name, these leaders stood and said, we are going to lead. We are going to make these promises and bind them together with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God. So Kim went through those promises last week. And seven different promises, but it arched under three specific, like, themes of the promises. And the first one was, uh, you can see in 10 verse 30, was marriage. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to those around us or take their daughters for our sons. So marriage was one of the promises. The next one was Sabbath, that we will not buy from neighboring people on the Sabbath, that we won't abuse the Sabbath, that we'll honor the Sabbath, which is one of the main reasons why they went into exile in the first place. They also talked that they will submit to and agree to that seventh year where we'll allow our fields to rest, to not plant anything, harvest anything, and we'll also cancel the debts of anybody who is in debt. And this Sabbath, they're going to honor it. That was the second promise. And they said, we promise also to care for the house of God. We will not neglect the responsibilities for caring for the house of God, including the tithe and the temple tax, that they will give offerings, provide the resources, the grain offerings, the wood, the produce, the food for the, the Levites. The Levites would bring their contributions. They would assume their responsibilities. And it was wonderful. All the things that were needed to take care for worship to happen, they agreed to. We promised. And they signed it and they sealed it. We will do this. It was beautiful. We'll not neglect the house of God. So a brief overview for chapter 11 and 12. It's beautiful. Chapter 11 begins very similar to how chapter 7 ended. It says, and the leaders 
and the people settled into Jerusalem. Ah, I love that settling, right? They're, just, they're settled in. They're comfortable. They're home. They're not fearful now of what's going to happen and being in captivity. Ah, life is good. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So those Levites and those leaders, they're the ones who lived in Jerusalem, inside the walled area. Of course, majority of Judah and the Israelites, they lived outside the walled area. It's like the city center. And so they're settled in their homes, and they commended those who lived inside to take care of the responsibility of the temple and worship and all that. And then in uh, 11, verse 20, it says, The rest of the Israelites, with the priests and the Levites, were in all the towns of Judah, each on their ancestral property. I love it. Like that over and over, they're back, they're home. It's good. Ah, back on the farm again, right? So good to go home, to be on the homestead. And they made it. It's like, to me, it's like that puzzle picture where you got those like cottages or those rancher one floor homes and the smoke coming out of the top and it's just comfy and cozy. They did it the way life should be, right? And chapter 12, there's this wonderful ceremony, this dedication of the wall. And it says in chapter 12 that they celebrated joyfully. They purified themselves. The leaders purified themselves. They purified all the people. They went around and they purified the wall and they purified all the gates. And it says, too, that there was large choirs that were organized. And they stood on top of the wall. So there was a large choir that went up to the right. There was a large choir that went up to the left. And they're standing on top of the wall. And they're proclaiming thanksgiving and song and glory to God. They're rejoicing. Sacrifices are taking place. It says in 1243. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Wow. Can you imagine being like, I don't know, miles away and you see the, like this, you know, shallow looking wall from so far away and these little people on top and you can just hear the faint shouts of joy and worship and singing. They did it, right? Isn't that awesome? It's wonderful. And so we land here in Nehemiah 13. God's been faithful. The people are responding and glorifying and thanking God. And it's cool, actually, even the title of chapter 13, Nehemiah's Final Reform. Right? That's not, of course, in the original manuscript, but this title added to it. I was like, oh, right on. His final benediction, right? His, his final conclusion to this amazing few years and events of God's faithfulness, bringing them out of captivity back to Jerusalem. These closing remarks, like at a graduation ceremony, where the person gives the charge and inspires the graduates about what's next and moving on forward. This monologue that is emotional and satisfying, and this conclusion to this conquest, we're here. So that's what we get to go through today. Nehemiah's final reform. So verse 1, we're going to go through it together. Let me pray and we'll start. Lord, we thank you for this journey that we have been on this semester. And we thank you that you have gone before us. You have been with us each and every single step. And we uh, can trust and have faith fully knowing that your presence is here today. So, Spirit, speak to our hearts. Convict us. Inspire and encourage us in this moment as we look into your word. Amen. So, verse 1, it says this. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud. 
uh, they're still doing it. They're still reading God's word, making it a value and an important thing in their life. It was read out loud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. So nothing new to us, right? Israel, they had enemies. We see that throughout Scripture, that they had enemies. It's, It's nothing new here. We know this. God is a pure God. And because he is a pure God, he calls his people to be righteous and to be pure as well. And so God isn't against other races. He, he created them. But he is against other races infiltrating into the, the level of worship that his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, would give. So the example like King Solomon did, he had his, these foreign wives that came in. And it turned his attention and turned his worship away from Yahweh to other gods, and it infiltrated into them. So there's this making sure that no infiltration comes in and people turn away from Yahweh. So no Ammonite, no Moabite. Okay, we got it. Let's continue on in this conclusion. Verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Have we heard that name before? Tobiah. Where do we hear that name before? Anybody remember? Like in chapters 2 and 3, Tobiah the Ammonite. Wait a second. Didn't we just read that no Ammonites and no Moabites are to be a part of this? Okay, well, let's look further. And he, Eliashib, the priest, had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while I was gone, but all, oh, sorry, excuse me, but while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Okay, so Nehemiah had left Jerusalem. He had gone back to the king. Do you remember at the beginning of the book, we had talked about that he made this request to the king that he can bring the third wave back to Jerusalem out of captivity. And the king says, yes, you can go, but how long are you going for? When are you going for? And when are you coming back? And so he made his promise, and he stuck to his promise to return to the king, to go back to Babylon, to still be the cupbearer for a season, to finish his responsibilities and duties there. How long that was and where Nehemiah had, like, you know, left Babylon, came to Jerusalem, finished the wall, went back to Babylon, and then came back to Jerusalem again, the timeline is a little bit muddy. From the first time to Jerusalem with the third wave to this moment is 12 years. But within that 12 years, when did he go back to Babylon? We don't know. It's got to be a few years, uh, and we'll, we'll see this a little bit later in the chapter. But while this was going on, while he was away and back in Babylon, all this in Jerusalem, what was taking place is the priest gave Tobiah, the Ammonite, the one by law was told not to be associated with the Israelites at all. He gave him a place to stay. 
And not only just a place to stay, he gave him the room that was, quote, unquote, formerly used for the grain offerings, formerly used for temple articles, for sacrifices, the resources needed for the Levites and the priests. In writing that we saw in chapter 10, these people said, we will not neglect the temple and we will make sure we bring these resources into the temple for your worship to God, that the room that they stored their resources, their grain, their wood, their food, their produce, everything for sacrifice, the articles, everything, Tobiah is living large in the room here. Eliashib, the high priest, gave him the room. The guy who was the enemy to the Israelites, who wanted to thwart God's plan, this is the one where he is now in the large room. Okay, but things might get better here, right? Maybe. Okay, well, here we go. Verse, continuing on in verse 7. Here I learned about the evil things Eliashib had done by providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and I stationed them at their posts. Okay, so Nehemiah here is starting to lose it, right? He gets back. Tobiah is chilling in the temple, and so he cleans out the room, throws everything out. His bedding, his clothes, all of his belongings, gone. Tosses them out of the room, and he starts to put back in what the room is to be used for, for the resources needed for the worship and for the service. So this is, this is Nehemiah being one of those angry parents, right? You ever come home and the house is a mess and your parents start losing it on you and you're like a teenager? Ever have that experience? Uh, ever have another person in your life that is just like at any given moment notice, they'll just blow up and it's like the, that super awkward silence. You don't want to do anything because you're just afraid of this moment. So when I was in high school, I had a drama teacher who uh, was this individual. Wonderful gentleman, loved uh, Mr. Geltke, but he every single year... Uh, near the production time, because they would do like a drama production every year, nearing the time that the production was going to take place, about two to three weeks leading up to it, super stressful. It's always the like, okay, this person doesn't have their lines memorized. We don't have our costumes yet set for this. Who's doing makeup? Blah, blah, blah. Set design is behind. We have this like timeline we got to be done by. And he, every single year, would have a moment that he would just lose it. The whole like closet or room for all the... Uh, the costumes, he would toss all of them out into the middle of the drama room because it would always get messy by the end of the year, right? So everything's out, all the props are in the middle of the room. And so for the grade 12s and the grade 11s, they knew that this would happen every year because it happened every year. But I remember my grade 10 year, my first year, and all of a sudden I'm standing there and he is just like, rah, 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 and tossing everything and props flying. This is what I think of when I read this passage of Nehemiah. Just that, and tossing everything out. <laughs> it got so bad that the Levites, those who volunteered their time, those that the, the Israelites commended them for going into Jerusalem, right? They had to leave 
Because there was no resources. There was no food for them to eat. There was nothing for them to hold the services. So they had to go back to those like ancestral properties that the rest of their family is at. They had to abandon their posts. They neglected the house of God. Verse 12, all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zodak the scribe, and a Levite named Pedaiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zachar, and son of Matani, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its servants. So Nehemiah, in his dismay, in his frustration, seeing the neglect of the responsibility of taking care of God's house, the abuse of it, he brings order once again. He brings leadership once again back into the system. And I love that with, like, the priest, the scribe, the Levite, the assistants. The, the one thing in which that they were, had all in common and the reason why he put them in leadership is because they were trustworthy. That was the characteristic that Nehemiah noticed in them. And so he established them and put them in a place of authority because they were trustworthy. That their character was intact. Not just because they were good at something or they had these specific skill sets, but their character was intact. They were trusted. Then Nehemiah prays to God. He says, remember me. And if you're listening... There might be a theme to that, and it might be a specific point followed by or beginning with the same letter we've been doing so all semester. Verse 15, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish of all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So in Ezekiel 20, specifically, it talks about the cause as to why the Israelites went into captivity in the first place. Ultimately, it was their sin and their disobedience to the Lord. But specifically, it was for idolatry and breaking the Sabbath. For hundreds of years, the Israelites broke the Sabbath. On the the weekly day of Sabbath, where they were to not sell, to not purchase, to have a day of rest, to enjoy God's glory and be thankful for all that they have. Also, that every seventh year, that sabbatical year, where they're to cancel debts, to leave their fields still, to not be planting, not be sowing, not be reaping. All these things they neglected for hundreds of years. And because of that, they were put into captivity in Babylon. And they made promises, these Israelites. They made promises. They made binding agreements with curses and oaths. And they wrote their names and they affixed their seals and they made it legal to not do this. Verse 18, Nehemiah says, didn't your ancestors do the same things? So that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city. And now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating 
the Sabbath. Hey, okay, Nehemiah's final reform isn't as happy as I thought it was going to be when we started, right? Verse 19. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. I think Nehemiah was a scary dude. Verse 22, then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. There's that remember me prayer again. Show mercy to me according to your great love. So last week, Kim had discussed about the promises, the oaths, and I overviewed them a bit to begin with. And there were three overarching themes of these promises that they made. We promise to not neglect the temple, right? 10 verse 32 says, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands. Verse 35, we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops of every fruit tree. Well, I messed that one up, right? They also promised to keep the Sabbath, verse 31 in chapter 10. When our neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Well, they're 0 for 2 so far, right? (laughs) And what was the third promise? Anybody remember what the third promise was? Not neglect the temple, to not obey or to disobey the Sabbath, and to not what? Mary, outside the Israelite camp. This was their promise. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Anybody want to guess what happens next? (laughs) Verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men in Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. So here's that uncertainty as to, like, the timeline for Nehemiah when he first came to Jerusalem, how long he was there for. He went back to Babylon, and then he returned again 12 years from his first arrival. When he returns back to Babylon and comes the second time, there has to have been a significant amount of years there because people would have married, and then they would have started having kids, and those kids would at least be at an age that they could start speaking, and they were not speaking the language of Judah. They were speaking these foreign languages in which the Israelites were marrying into or receiving from. So it had to have been a few years. Now, this gets crazy, okay? We thought Nehemiah was a scary guy already. Uh, You wouldn't want to mess with him. Verse 25. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. You ever called curses down on somebody before? I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? 
Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Verse 28, one of the sons of Joadah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Hornite, and I drove him away from me. Remember me, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Okay, so a lot to go through here. <laughs> Ezra, in his book, when he saw the wickedness of the Israelites, do you know what he did in crying out to the Lord? <clears throat> he pulled out his hair in grief and crying out to the Lord, pulled out his own hair. Nehemiah, when he sees the wickedness of the Israelites, what does he do? He starts pulling out their hair. <laughs> Not his own, but their hair. He is like calling curses and beating them and holding their heads and pulling out their hair. Like I think of Homer and Bart Simpson because then he's like telling him to swear this oath, like choking Bart Simpson. And he's like, ah, I promise not to marry them, okay? Like he loses it on them, right? Nehemiah is a scary guy. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or take their daughters for our sons. Oh, for three on their promises that they make. Like, what a slap in the face, right? Like, I mean, like, yeah, Nehemiah would have done that physically, but I mean figuratively both to Nehemiah and ultimately to the Lord. Like, what a slap in the face. And Eliashib, the high priest, Oh, I got some beef with this guy. I want to have some words with him. Okay, so he housed Tobiah, the Ammonite, at the beginning of the chapter. We learned that. In the temple, in the large room, with all his stuff, relaxing, having a good time. Not only that, but his grandson, Eliashib, his grandson married the daughter of who? Of Sanballat. Also remember in chapter 2 and 3, who were the names of the people fighting after the Israelites, trying to stop them from building the wall? Sanballat and Tobiah. And another dude, Geshem. Thank you. I don't know where Geshem went on this, but Eliashib probably has friends with him too. I don't know. His own grandson marries the daughter of Sanballat. Like, and we're talking, marriages isn't just two people coming together. This is a family affair. These families are now joined together. It's at holidays and anniversaries, Sunday night potlucks. They're leaning back together, enjoying each other's company and loving and caring and serving each other. The people who were against God's will, against his plan, against his people, this is who the high priest and the leaders of Israel are spending their free time with. What a, what a bad leader. <clears throat> Verse 30, so I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood and designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. Well, that didn't turn out the way that Hollywood would have planned that, right? What a final reform. What a final benediction. Thought it was going to be inspiring, but these three major overarching promises that they made 
They went 0 for 3 in a couple of years of keeping their word. They broke them all. And so the cycle continues, as we see in the Old Testament. The cycle rolls over once again. God blesses his people. He shows love to them, and he saves them, and he frees them. And they initially respond with praise and adoration and love back. And eventually they turn away. And because of their sin, God releases them to their sin, and he punishes and he corrects them. And their response is, uh, as they're hurt, they cry out again to God. And God, in his compassion, he hears them, and he blesses them, and he saves them. The cycle continues. In the whole book of Nehemiah, we see the full cycle. Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, which we'll get to in our commissioning week, conclude similarly with some bad taste in our mouth that we thought things were working out. We thought that they were going to get back to this righteousness, to this reformed living, and yet these acts just fall short every time. Putting these things on, living according to the law, they try and they fail, and the cycle continues, and the cycle continues, and the cycle continues. Actually, in the chapter 9, in that prayer that Kim read out, it was four or five times that we, we read the cycle, and God had compassion, and he blessed and he saved. And they sinned and then they cried out. And God had compassion. And he blessed and he saved. And there's a lot of things that we've discussed regarding reform this semester. That it begins with prayer. That it must be established by God's word. That it's to be done in people, in community. To develop deep below our waterline, internal in our soul. That in our response, in our to reform, that it should include spiritual habits and rhythms in our life. It should include repentance and responsibility. But true life-changing reform isn't just done by adding on things into our life. The cycle would continue. True life-changing reform isn't done by adding. It's done by surrendering your life. It's done by dying to self giving up control so that we can have everlasting life through the one who did give his life. And I want to I finish with this. <clears throat> so remember our R words. Anybody want to take a guess on what our R word is on this one? His prayer four times in this chapter. He says, remember me. Remember me with favor, oh my God. And it can kind of sound a bit self-serving, right? Like, okay, all these people are, like, messing up. I know you were gone, and then you came back, and things are in pretty rough shape. Uh, but it can seem a little bit self-serving that you're like, Lord, you see what they're doing. But remember, I wasn't here this whole time. That's not the attitude and the perspective that Nehemiah is praying in this regard. And it loses its translation in our English language. But Nehemiah isn't recognizing just their shortcoming. He's recognizing their shortcoming. It's not a personal, it's a corporate concept. The shortcomings and tendency of self-deception. And it actually ought to be read along the same lines as what David's prayer was in Psalm 139. It's a great psalm, talking about how we are fearfully 
and wonderfully made. That God knows us well. He knows us when we're sitting and when we're standing, when we're rising. He knows when we are on our walks. And he takes us from morning to travel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Wherever we go, God is still there. He watches over us. And he guards us. And he knows our deepest thoughts. And the, and the psalm ends like this. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David's perspective, his, his attitude of prayer here is, God, search me. Because I don't know me. So show me me is essentially what he is saying. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of salvation. And Nehemiah's prayer is along those same lines. Lord, remember me. Show me who I am, where my self-deception is, where our self-deception is in this situation. Remember me. It's also the same prayer that the thief prayed when he was hanging on the cross beside Jesus on Good Friday. Right? The one thief casts shame towards Jesus. If you really are who you say you are, get yourself off this cross and us too. And the other thief other thief says, remember, this is what it says in Luke 23, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief is fully aware of his sins. It's a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of, Lord, search me. That's Nehemiah's prayer in this moment. Lord, it's a prayer of repentance. I need you. I need your salvation. I need your righteousness. I need your reform. I need you to show me. And with compassion, who God is, his very nature, he hears the cries of his people, and he saves them, and he blesses them. And each of these stories end on somewhat of a bad taste in preparation for the ultimate answer of Jesus who paid the penalty for our sins, where it isn't by our doing that gains righteousness and salvation and reform in our life, but it's through our faith in him that salvation comes. And as we surrender our lives, Nehemiah here, surrendering his life in repentance and salvation, then the reform comes of, these, of prayer and scripture reading and community and work below the waterline and repentance and, and spiritual rhythms are all an outflow of our surrender, not what we do to gain salvation. Make sense? So can I pray for you? <clears throat> Lord, that's our heart today that you would show us internally who we are. Thank you, Jesus, that our righteousness is given, granted, and offered to us, Jesus, because of your death on that cross, because of your resurrection from the grave, that we have new life through faith in you, Jesus. Lord, thank you that you look at us covered by the blood of the Lamb, Therefore, spotless and pure and without blemish. Your love is so wild. It's transformative. It's life-changing. It's so wonderful. 
Lord, as we look to these words and somewhat of an unfortunate ending in Nehemiah here, we're just reminded of how wonderful and how good and pleasing your love is for our lives by sending your son, Jesus. I think of this weekend, it being Palm Sunday and next weekend being Easter Sunday. Spirit, would you remind us, would you draw us to those scriptures in the Gospels? The showcase of your love in full force, Jesus, in those moments. And Lord, we also pray this prayer of search me. Reveal inside of me, reveal inside of us, Lord, our shortcomings, our fallings. When others make mistakes, may we not step up or look down on them with pride, but that we would humble ourselves and say, Lord, search me as well, that I may not be deceived. I pray this over this school. I pray this over every person here. And I ask, Holy Spirit, as you reveal, as you convict, that our response would be reform, would be repentance, would be prayer, would be running to your presence and not away from it. We pray all this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here today. Next week, Omega Chapel. We'll see you then. Satan fall like light.